Hi, I'm Scott. And I'm Ben. And we're from Car Stuff. We're the podcast that covers everything that floats, flies, swims, or drives. Adventures, thrills, chills, literally planes, trains, and automobiles. That's right. And you can find all of our episodes on Google Play, Spotify, iTunes, and really anywhere else you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. There is, gentle reader, nothing the works of God only set apart which so much beautifies and adorns the soul and mind of man as does knowledge of the good arts and sciences. Many arts there are which beautify the mind of man, but of all, none do more garnish and beautify it than those arts which are called mathematical unto the knowledge of which no man can attain without perfect knowledge and instruction of the principles, grounds, and elements of geometry. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And my name is Christian Sager. And if last episode sounded like we were invoking a ritual to summon uh, angels or demons, this sounds like we are teaching uh, AP calculus. <laughs> yeah, that uh, the, those are the words of Dr. John D. Those are from his uh, preface, his mathematical preface to the 1570 translation of Euclid's Elements. Now, at this point, we should uh, we should mention that if you did not listen to our previous episode on John D, you definitely need to go back to that one. Yeah, Beca- uh, because that is, that is the episode where we we really dove into his timeline and discussed in broad strokes the major events of his life. Yeah, uh, we also focused on the sort of magical occult aspects of John D's beliefs and life in that episode. This episode, we're really going to focus on his scientific education, his ability with mathematics, um, how he participated in statecraft in England, and in fact, advocated for expanding the British Empire, and uh, especially developed crypto cryptography as we yeah. know it today. Yeah, and it's it's interesting too in that even though, you know, in in a sense the last episode was magic and this one is the is the science. This is more uh, rooted in the real world. John D was not so firmly rooted. He seemed to to live simultaneously in the mathematical and the magical world. He did not really see a division like like the, the the spiritual, the mathematical, the magic, it was all part of the world as he perceived it. Yeah, so get ready. As we're talking about this stuff, it may seem like, oh, we're going over some historical science here, and then all of a sudden, you know, Merlin will pop up, or <laughs> uh, maybe some angelic influence here or there. Yeah, now it's it's really important to note here, too, though, that as unique as D was, this mixing of magic and math, the suspicion of math even, was, was not unique to him. It was, uh, it, it was very much a part of the day. Uh, mathematics was regarded in some circles with suspicion at the time. During the Tudor era, mathematical books were sometimes burned as alleged conjuring books. This, according to 17th century uh, uh, antiquarian John Aubrey, and it was and it was still very much associated with the dark arts. I mean, you have to to, to, th- to think, uh, Pythagoras, yeah. uh, key in the history of mathematics, was also considered a magician. Uh, numbers had inherent powers, and this is a theme that ran through the works of Kepler, Newton, Euclid, and others. So there was a long tradition of 
of mathematics and and magic kind of sharing the same space. One of the things that I read was that uh, mathematics were considered disreputable and connected to witchcraft because they were associated with numerology. And I mentioned this in the last episode, the Jewish mystical tradition of the Kabbalah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're going to talk about the cryptography stuff in a minute. But Trithemius, who wrote the book that Dee really worked off of to create his version of cryptography, that guy was also suspected of wizardry. So this had a long-standing tradition. Uh, D, for his part, though, in terms of mathematics, his lectures on Euclid were wildly popular as he was seen as a leading scientific figure of his day. I'm picturing that he's like the Neil deGrasse Tyson, right? Like he's he's giving lectures. Everybody's really interested. Uh, these lectures earned him an offer to join the faculty at the Sorbonne in Paris in 1551. We mentioned that real briefly last time, but he turned stuff like this down because he was hoping to obtain an official position with the English crown. He was also, uh, Robert read from this at the beginning, but it's worth pointing out, the editor of the first English translation of Euclid's Elements. And in that, he added his preface, which what Robert read came from, this preface argued for the usefulness of mathematics. Like, people didn't regard mathematics as being important at that time. And in fact, this was the first time the public were introduced to the symbols plus, minus, uh, X for multiply, and the little dot, uh, dash dot for division. Yeah, in this, uh, this, this preface, the mathematical preface, he proposed, uh, an, an, an arts mathematical that he compared to thaumaturgy, which is a, the use of magic for religious purposes. So he saw mathematics rather than magic as the key to thaumaturgical wonder. Uh, men's work could rival the gods if they could utilize mathematics correctly. Mm. And, and in this, you know, you could say D was correct. I mean, we may disagree on whether math is a human invention or a human discovery, but it has thus far proven to correspond to the inner workings of the cosmos. It's our, our best tool, essentially. Mm-hmm. He saw this reflected in the creation of automatons, those of Albertus Magnus uh, and others. So, uh, you know, all these various uh, mechanical devices that mimicked the uh, the the appearance of life and the movement and the uh, and and the willfulness of life. And in fact, that's where that uh, uh, his FX work in uh, 1546 comes into play. That's what he was essentially dabbling in. Yeah, we talked about this in the last episode. Mm-hmm. He apparently created this giant automaton. Reportedly, it was a mechanical flying beetle. I don't know if it actually flew or not, but apparently it was, it was so impressive that people thought that it was magic. Yeah. And that was very much in keeping with his view of what math was and what, what science was, was capable of doing, that it could replicate the wonders of nature by manipulating the same properties. And he saw, he saw things like automatons and even his own uh, special effects work, uh, as proof of that, he saw the, uh, the, the optics of his special mirror, his kind of reverse mirror oh, yeah. that he would uh, wow people with. He saw that as an example of, look, the, these amazing feats are possible through optics, through mathematics, through science. And ultimately, his mathematics led to him advocating for the expansion of the British Empire. And he reportedly is the one who coined the term British Empire. Yeah, which is crazy. It, it's also, it's, it's, sometimes you forget. Like, it, it's hard to think back to a time where the British Empire wasn't a thing, not only in in actuality, but even in concept. Yeah. So, 
we're, we're traveling back to 1577 here, and this is kind of what was going on at the time. Sir Francis Drake was preparing for an epic voyage around the globe. Um, Washington's spies had exposed uh, another plot against the British crown, and he had noted a significant problematic comet amid the, the meaning saturated stars. And on November 28th, amid all of these excitements, D comes and he proposes this concept, this idea to the Queen of England that she should challenge Spain's imperial claim to the new world. Mm, yeah. And a lot of this uh, was based around uh, how do I put this? He so on top of being a brilliant mathematician, he was able to apply that to cartography yes. and mapping out routes or understanding the geography of the new world. Yeah, it's. You mentioned cartographers here. We'd mentioned in the past uh, episode that uh, that he uh, he'd learned uh, from and was in correspondence with uh, with noted cartographer uh, Garadas uh, Mercator. Yeah, and uh, Mercator is apparently the guy who filled him in about this idea that um, that there was a precedence for the British Empire set by a legendary incursion into the northern indrawing seas around the pole. By King Arthur in the year 530. Yeah. Lands that had hence been claimed by Iberian nations. This is where he got the whole idea. He being D got the whole idea for him being the modern day Merlin Mm -hmm. and Elizabeth being the modern day Arthur. Uh, He actually presented Elizabeth with a treatise on Britain's imperial limits at one point, and it suggested that the Americas had actually been discovered by King Arthur centuries before. Yeah. And and, and also that. The British Empire was already a thing. Mm-hmm. It, this this concept is not something that that England could claim for itself, but reclaim. This was a this was part of its identity already. Yeah. So you might be wondering, what's a courtier, anyways? Right. So a lot of people when they're describing D, they just say, "Well, he's a courtier." I, I don't know what that means. Uh, apparently, it is a man that is concerned with the operation of the royal court and, by extension, the kingdom of which it was an effective ruling body. So it was in his interests to make sure that the ruling body of Britain expanded. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the court as well, because the court at the time was 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 lavish and uh you know, rather impressive uh, to behold. But at the same time, he was horribly in debt. The, the, likewise, uh, the the, uh, the English military was weak. The political condition was far from stable. Re- England was a relatively poor nation. And the idea of challenging Spain, imperial Spain, in uh, such a manner was was highly ambitious, if not outright ridiculous. Remember, at the time, there was a there was a papal bull uh, dividing the Americas between the Spanish and the Portuguese. So it wasn't just that England should challenge Spain. It was that English should England should challenge the papacy's division of the globe. This was yeah. this was this, this was not just, hey, we're. We're we're pretty awesome. We should go over and claim this. It's like no, we this involves a, a leveling up right. of the nation that might not be practical, and it worked. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, and for his part, the way that D assisted was with his knowledge of cartography and mathematical modeling. So he instructed captains and pilots in the principles of mathematical navigation. He would prepare maps for their use, and he furnished them with various navigational instruments. In the 1550s, he actually advised Richard Chancellor's expedition through the North Sea so that he could establish a trade route between England and Moscow. And there's there's some evidence that D uh, 
was, uh, I guess, uh, financially involved in that as well. Like he had, he had something to gain from this, um, uh, trade route. In 1572, a new star appeared and it was visible for 17 months. Now today we know that this was a supernova in the constellation Cassiopeia. Uh, D saw this as the signal for the beginning of the English Protestant Empire. And so he uh, also instructed an expedition to discover the Northwest Passage to China in 1576. Now, uh, I've talked a lot about Northwest Passages before, the, or the Northwest Passage and expeditions through it before on the show because I've done research on it in the past. Um, you know, like, like almost all of these, it was totally fruitless. Uh, but it did lead to English settlements in Canadian North America. And this is where it gets crazy. D formed his own company to colonize the Americas. And there's some evidence that he was the intellectual force behind Francis Drake's circumnavigation of the globe. And D would be awarded rights to any new, newly discovered land that was north of the 50th parallel if Drake had gone any further north than Oregon. This basically would have given him all of Canada. So D would have, like, if this had all worked out, D would own Canada. (laughs) How different might Canadian history be if it had been founded by a wizard? Yeah, right, exactly. (laughs) Um, And, you know, we talked about this in the last episode uh, you know, D moved his family to Krakow, Poland in 1583. A lot of it had to do with the whole, uh, angelic communication thing and Lasky and, and, uh, Kelly, as we previously described. But some believed that the whole reason he was there was actually to act as a spy. Uh, and when the Holy Roman Emperor Rudolf II suspected D, that's when he was banished from the empire. And he went to a small town called Trebon in at what the time was southern Bohemia. I imagine now it's probably uh, part of the Czech Republic or maybe Slovakia. But um, uh, th- this is fascinating. That's what gets him kicked out when, uh, as we know from last episode, he just basically went up to Rudolf and was like, hey, angels told me you're possessed by demons. And Rudolph is like, eh, whatever. But uh, then he's like, maybe this guy's a spy. And he gets rid of him. Now, here's a really fun fact. Are you ready, everybody? D signed his letters to Elizabeth as 007. Yeah, a secret sign, a cipher that at least looked like 007. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I'm wondering if that's where... Um, uh, Ian Fleming got the idea for 007 from, or if it's maybe an actual, it has a historical precedent. So I've read two different versions of this. One is that uh, Ian Fleming was reading about John D at the time uh-huh. and directly got this, uh, this idea from D's writings. Okay. And I've also read some people that cast doubt on this whole connection and uh, say that, oh, well, actually, John D didn't really use 007. So, um, I'm not sure exactly where the truth lies yeah, there. Somewhere in the middle. But uh, but we will get back to this whole spying thing, this whole espionage thing, because as incredible as everything has been thus far, um, it really gets crazier. In, in the episode where we're not even talking about angelic communication and all that. Right. Okay, why don't we take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about the cryptography aspects of Dee's career. 
What happens to our digital lives when we're gone? Could our online personalities be brought back to life? What could artificial intelligence do when combined with saved digital memories? A new podcast from GE Podcast Theater in Panoply, the creators of last year's award-winning The Message, explores those very questions. The story follows Ross Barnes, a low-level employee at the FBI who spends his days conversing online with his wife, Charlie who died eight months ago. But the technology behind this digital resurrection leads Ross down a dangerous path that threatens his job, his own life, and maybe even the world. The title of the series is Life After. That's all one word. It's ten episodes in length. Listen, subscribe, and download it today. All right, we're back. So cryptography, the 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 study, the creation and the breaking of codes and ciphers. Yeah, so we we've already covered this slightly, but D was taken with the work of German abbot Trithemius. Uh and he was an important figure in the history of cryptography as well as occultism and uh, in 1564 while D was in Antwerp, he tracked down a copy of Trithemius's most famous work the Ste- I'm going to get this wrong, the Steganaographia, and copied it. Now you were telling me that there is this like whole weird thing about the copying of it. Oh yeah, yeah, it's 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 pretty strange. So certainly, uh, Trithemius was a big deal. Again, important figure in the history of cryptography and occultism, and uh, and and uh, D was already a fan. He owned several copies of his uh, of his book uh, Polygraphia, which was the first printed book about the subject of cryptography. Uh, not to say, you know, certainly not the first book. It's also worth noting that there was a there was an Arabic book that uh, that was already out there in the world, and this uh, book was by a, a man by the name of Al Kindi. Uh, but this was the first uh, that was, you know, a, a, certainly the first Western tome mm-hmm. dealing with cryptography. Uh, there were 12 uh, rotating uh, paper uh, cipher disks embedded within the pages. And even today, they're in mar- remarkably good condition. They still turn. Uh, so it, it was a pretty, oh, wow. pretty phenomenal book. I'm kind of thinking of, I, I don't think you've seen this movie yet, but that Doctor Strange movie came out. Oh, I've seen it. Yeah. Oh, you saw mm-hmm. it? Yeah. You know, the library in that. That's yeah. what I'm imagining. Yeah, yeah, very much. Yeah, and certainly there's a lot of like circular devices and and, yeah. and glyphs uh, that should pop up in that movie that uh, that feel right at home in the the, the world of John D. Except not glowing and spinning in the air, <laughs> right? Uh, unless you're talking to Edward Kelly, and he'll say, "Yeah, I can see those discs, probably." Uh, so yeah, he he finds out there's a copy of Steganographia out there, which uh, was a rare book. It was an uh, essentially an, an, an abandoned work of Trithemius's because it dealt with, at least on the surface, dealt with angelic communication. It dealt with Uh. communing with spirits and using spirits to relay messages over vast distances. Okay, Uh, hold on a second. I think I've got a theory here. Let's see if this plays out as we're uh, talking more about Trithemius. What if, so we know that D was really into Trithemius and that he gathered all of this information before he met Edward Kelly. Mm-hmm. What if Edward Kelly was using Trithemius to create his version of Enochian that eventually D wrote down and, 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 uh, hearkened as the ang- angelic language? Yeah. Maybe that's it. 
it, it, it sounds compelling to me. Uh, I guess I should probably say a little more about uh, Trithemius before I, before I go any, any further here. But this guy alone was pretty fascinating. This was the man who served as advisors to emperors, uh, was among the most uh, erudite uh, German book collectors of his time, author of more than 50 books himself, and the founder of scientific bibliography. He was, as previously noted, the first uh, printed author on the subject of cryptography in the West. And, um, and yet then here's this book. This seems to be devoted to angelic magic, mm-hmm. uh, that he was forced to abandon writing because he was talking to other people about it. And they were like, ooh, I don't know about, about, about this book you're working on, <laughs> Trithemius. Uh, even as he was making, writing it, he made claims that the text would enable communication over vast distances to communicate one's thoughts by fire and other claims. So basically, like, like, other individuals hearing about this, they were like, like, well, this mean, this makes it sound like either you're lying, right, or you're a demonic sorcerer, right? Neither, uh, neither of which are, are smiled upon. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, not, not so much in the uh, uh, in the church. So, the the crazy thing is that over the centuries, it's been revealed that all three volumes of this work are concerned with cryptography. Uh, the mo- and most recently, Volume 3. So pretty early on, uh, commentators figured out, all right, well, these first two books are only like surface level about angelic magic. They're mm. really about cryptography and codes and ciphers. But they thought for the longest, well, this third book, though, this just seems to be about magic. There's no code here. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of a fitting read for the, the the life of John D. the idea of like at what point does the magic become the main thing. Right. But here's the crazy part. This only this a uh, view of the third book of uh, steganographia only lasted until the late 1990s. Okay, that's when two individuals experienced unrelated breakthroughs in cracking it: German linguist Thomas Ernst and Jim Reeds, who was working in the mathematics and cryptography research department at AT and T. That this is wait. So AT and T paid for somebody to research this old book on angelic communication and cryptography. Well, it's uh, I don't know if he did. I'm not certain if he did this part on the AT and D dime. Oh, okay. Um, but Reeds is a guy who's subsequently written a few different books on this and other D related works, um, and uh, he uh, he wrote about about this particular work in 1998, summing it up uh, with the following, uh, which is, uh, I think, rather illuminating as we continue to look at, at Dee's obsessions. Quote, the question now is, why did Trimetheus so thoroughly embrace the rhetoric of magic for such a non-magical, as we regard it, purpose? Did he regard cryptography as inherently magical? Or was his choice of the langu- that language a solution to the stylistic problem that all authors of cryptographic exposition have to solve how to sustain the reader's interest through example after example of usually tedious plain texts possibly tedious explanations of cryptographic techniques and always tedious cipher texts trimetheus's use of angel language might thus be a rhetorical strategy to engage the reader's interest if so he was vastly successful even if he completely miscalculated how his book would be received because mm. this basically, like I said, that he was an important figure in, in occult circles. Yeah. Because for the longest, like, that's what these books look like. That's what those books mean if you're not breaking the, cro- the code and sort of finding the, the deeper symbolism, the, the deeper purpose of the, the text. 
Yeah. So he's, he's thinking along the lines of, I'm going to write this really groundbreaking, uh, piece of linguistic science, but that's not really sexy. So I'll tell everyone it's about angels. Yeah. Or it's like, a, it's kind of thinking, think about it like this. If you have, you have a grammar lesson, yeah. what kind of sentence are you going to use? You're going to use a boring sentence or an exciting one. Right. You right. Know? Yeah. So in a sense, he used the exciting sentence. Uh, he put, he put a dog in his sentence. So know? another, okay. Another theory. And yeah. again, I'm no D scholar and I know there's lots of people out there who've poured through his diaries, but maybe D was doing the same thing. Well, that, that, that becomes the, the, the crazy thing to try and figure out. Like yeah. where, where were, what were D's interests here? Was he interested in the magic? Yeah. Was he interested in the, I mean, sure, clearly he was interested in cryptography. Yeah. He'd read his other book. That's why he sought out this one. There was the whole wife swapping thing, though. So there is a certain amount of him actually believing angels are telling him to do things he doesn't want to do. It makes one think, like, at what point in studying cryptography through the language of magic do you become kind of ensorcelled by the magic, yeah. by the language of, the, yeah. of, of, of magic? Uh, yeah, it's crazy. Now, now back to this whole uh, expedition where he ends up finding this copy of this rare book. So as Benjamin Woolley points out in his book, this was no small accomplishment. It was a really difficult book to steal a peek at. It was it was banned. It was uh, actually uh, actually the church had placed it on the index Librorum uh, Prohibitorum in 1609 and it remained there until 1900. Huh. So this was this was a this was a banned book. Yeah. This was a, like a dark book. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, it's black and, magic. Yeah, this is, this is, this is a dangerous text. Uh, so D had to spend money to travel. He probably had to pay bribes and he worked with a mysterious nobleman of Hungary who required that D in turn, quote, pleasure him with such points of science as he requireth. That, uh, that sounds filthy. <laughs> <laughs> I hope it's not. I hope it's not. Uh, maybe he was just like performing scientific tricks, like, I don't know. Fire, Ooh, like, <laughs> or yeah, it, it kind of sounds like you have, like, in this case with the nobleman of Hungary, kind of like yeah. a rich science fanboy, yeah. who has access to something amazing, and then therefore uses it and as, as an excuse to make the 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 real scientist slash magician hang out with him. Yeah, that sounds right. Uh, and then on top of this, so I mean, D's whole thing was not only to look at it, not only to read it, but to copy it. So he would have his own copy. Okay. And this was a difficult book to copy because it's it's full of tables and charts, uh, moving parts, uh, apparently meaningless names, angelic language, and uh, he only had ten days to get it all copied down. Likely with this Hungarian guy just standing over, yeah, his standing shoulder. over him the whole time, <laughs> trying to make small talk. Oh wow. And you really feel for John D when you dive into the details here, you know. I mean, yeah, he wasn't the greatest guy in the world. He did, you know, make his uh, young wife sleep with his uh, scryer at one point. But he really seemed to be doing his best to try to to gather this information up for the benefit of, I guess, like as he saw it, mankind. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I increasingly sympathize with D through, through all of these adventures and misadventures. Uh, increasingly more misadventures than adventures. Right. So yeah, we're forced to try and understand the role of this book really in, in D's life and what his, his obsession with this book tells us about his life. A book that is at once both concerned with, with purely with codes and also concerned with, with, 
very strange magical concepts mm. with very esoteric concepts. I imagine he kept this in the internal part of his uh, oh, library, yes. his sanctum sanctorum. This was, this was definitely uh, an inner library um, uh, product here. Now, according to, to contemporary cryptologist Simon Singh, uh, it, it's important to note here that... Uh, that you know, encryption had been around for a while. He he uh, particularly mentions that Al Kindi book that I mentioned earlier. Uh, in in the simplest forms, encryption is about swapping letters for symbols and uh, the use of frequency analysis to break it. And by the Elizabethan era, uh, cryptography was already getting a bit more advanced. This was again a time of plots, espionage, deep political intrigue, and encryption. Uh, was was an important tool. Uh, code making and code breaking was very much a part of the the actual Game of Thrones of the day. Mm-hmm. Uh, one example that Singh throws out is just consider the intrigue surrounding Mary, Queen of Scots. She wanted to take the English throne, so Elizabeth imprisoned her. But she used, uh, but then Mary used coded messages that she sent out to her co-conspirators, looking to work with the Spanish to put her on the throne instead of Elizabeth. Uh, Chief uh, code breaker Thomas Phillips. Uh, uh, this is Elizabeth's uh, code breaker, uh, came along. He broke this code she was using, and he broke it easily because she was using an outdated, simple form of cipher. So Mary was found out. She was tried. She was executed in 1587. So this serves as an example that that codes, the making of uh, the use of codes and the breaking of them was life and death. Yeah, especially when you consider like how much of this story that we've already told has involved political actors traveling around Europe, uh, suspected of being spies, but, you know, basically just saying like either like, oh, I'm just here to see the sights or I'm here to scry crystals and talk to angels or whatever. Right. Um, so code and cryptography would be essential to them passing messages back and forth, either from their home countries or uh, to their associates in these these other empires. That's right. So we're about to take another break. Uh, but as we take the break, think to yourself, which which is better? As, as you're out traveling around continental Europe, yeah, to be found out and accused as a spy or a magician, which which is the more dangerous scenario? Mm. Hey, everybody, with the holidays almost here, you don't have time to go to the post office. There's traffic. There's parking. It's going to be packed with everyone mailing holiday gifts and packages. So you need to do what we do here at How Stuff Works. You need to use Stamps.com instead. With Stamps.com, you can avoid all the hassle of going to the post office during the busy holiday season. Everything you can do from the post office, you can do right from your desk. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer. Print postage for any letter or package the instant you need it. Then just... Mail it. Give it to the mail person. They'll pick it right up. It's easy and convenient. We use stamps.com here at How Stuff Works. We need to send out the odd bit of merch or correspondence, and we want you to try it as well. So right now, sign up for stamps.com and use the promo code STUFF, S-T-U-F-F, for this special offer. You'll get a four-week trial plus a $110 bonus offer that includes postage and a digital scale. So don't wait. Go to stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in STUFF. That's stamps.com, enter STUFF, and start mailing things all right we're back okay so we asked which was better to be accused of being a spy at the time or a magician now given what we know about how many people accepted quote magic as being a part of not i wouldn't say daily life but like Mm -hmm. uh uh the sciences 
probably being accused of being a spy was worse. I think uh, there's there's less ambiguity, isn't there? Yeah. Because if you can you imagine you're you're accused of, oh, you're trying to speak to angels and you have all this angelic yeah. language, you know, depending on some individuals would certainly be very quick to condemn you and say, well, you're practicing horrible magic and this is bad. Uh, but there's, it seems like you have a certain amount of wiggle room there. Yeah, well, I mean, consider D's own case, right? He goes to the Holy Roman Emperor and he says, uh, angels told me you're possessed by demons. And the guy was like, eh, whatever. But then the, they, they think, uh, he might be a spy. He'll kick him out of the country. Yeah, at least, right? I yeah. mean, or, uh, or throw him into a dungeon, execute him, et cetera. Yeah. So, so that's the, 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 the question that one raises here. Was John D a spy? It, the, the answer kind of varies because it seems undoubtedly he played a role in introducing some uh, some concepts in cryptography yeah. to his Elizabethan masters. He had a great cover story. Yeah, he did a cover story. That's the other thing. To what extent is this a guy who ended up buying into his cover story? Like he went so <laughs> deep cover yeah. that he himself had vast difficulties uh, uh, re-emerging and returning to uh, right. Elizabethan England. Uh, it, yeah, it, it's it's difficult to piece it together because we have a guy here who seems to have been a pretty serious Christian, but he was also engaged in all of this uh, these occult interests. We have a guy who believed mathematics was the key to unlocking the secrets of the universe, who studied cryptography, who advised Queen Elizabeth I, who traveled rather extensively throughout Europe during a time of plots, political unrest, and war. And so, yeah, this has led some historians to ponder whether, uh, well, not really whether, but to what degree John D. was engaged in the espionage of the day. Mm -hmm. Uh, As early as the 17th century, English uh, polymath uh, Robert uh, Hoke suggested that D.'s Book of the Spirits was actually a book of code rather than an account of angelic conversations. Okay. And that it would be... To go back to our, our, our previous question, that it would be far better to be charged with being a, quote, pretend enthusiast rather than a real spy. OK. Yeah. You know, I'm starting to lean more and more towards that as a theory. Here's another interesting uh, tidbit. Following Dee's um, copying of the uh, uh, Steganographia in 1563, he, he certainly wrote to William Cecil. That's uh, Queen Elizabeth's key minister at the time. Uh and uh, who was uh, just beginning to put in place the espionage network that under uh, his uh, predecessor, uh, the spy master, Francis uh, Walshingham, um, would become one of the most formidable and effective uh, um, uh, spy systems, espionage systems in Europe. So uh, we're talking about the origins of MI6, basically. Basically, yeah. Like they, they, he, he, he wrote... In writing to Cecil, he's writing to one of the one of two key individuals, yeah, and laying the groundwork for a, a vast network of spies, a vast coded network of spies that depended mm-hmm. on coats. D wrote to Cecil apparently with great enthusiasm, telling him that uh, this book was quote the most precious jewel that I have yet of other men's uh, travails recovered, and that it would benefit quote the advancement of good letters and wonderful divine and secret sciences. Mm-hmm. So Benjamin Woolley in his book notes that that Cecil was a very practical, conservative sort of fellow and not the kind of guy to put a lot of stock in occult rituals. He was religious, he probably believed in spirits, you know, in kind of an abstract sense of the word yeah. that he wasn't going to go rattling off a list of angel names or anything. So the secret sciences that we're talking about here might very well refer to interest far more earthly 
uh, far more uh, espionage uh, related than anything to do with, uh, you know, angelic communication. So maybe D was duping Kelly. Yeah. Like he used a known uh, occultist, alchemist, criminal as his companion for 10 years possibly so that he could travel around and pretend like he was doing these rituals when in fact he was up to something a little bit more concrete. Yeah, it's I think one of the the, the difficult things in trying to figure out someone like D is we kind of look for this not so not maybe not a simple interpretation. Yeah. But we want a, a solid interpretation. And I guess the, the 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 way I keep trying to make sense of it is to think, all right, every one of us has a fairly complex worldview, a lot of contradictions, uh, a lot of I- we believe in various ideas simultaneously, even though they don't match up. And we all have, you know, I'm just going to generalize here and let's say let's say we all have very fairly normal brains. Mm-hmm. And D had an abnormal brain. D was a a brilliant man, one of the most brilliant men of his day. And therefore perhaps his contradictions were just that that much greater, that much stranger, that much uh, more out of proportion to what the rest of us live with. Yeah, I I think I can see where you're going with this that there's there's a little bit of truth to all of this. Yeah, that's 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 where I keep coming coming back to because it's it's tempting to say, oh well, he was only in it for the he was only in it for the codes. Right. He was a spy the whole time. He wasn't duped by this 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 weird Edward Kelly character. Uh, he was he was the secret uh, secret master the whole time. But as uh, as Wooley Wright said, D didn't see uh, the the steganographia as a purely diplomatic or political tool. Like based on his writings. He he clearly considered it to have far more esoteric uses. He believed that the cryptography could help him decipher other ancient texts, such as the the Book of Soiga, uh, an anonymous tome that he believed to have been written in in the the Enochian language. And another was a book that uh, was attributed to Roger uh, Bacon, the the Voynich uh, manuscript, oh, yeah. uh, which is still yet to be deciphered. Yeah, Voynich manuscript is something that comes up a lot around here. Um, yeah, I I, I know. Several of our uh, other shows here have done episodes on it, and mm-hmm. House of Works has like a, a pretty long Voynich manuscript article, I yeah. think, as well. Um, yeah, so maybe, maybe D then he's playing all sides for his own intent interests. You know, like yeah. he, he believes in the angel stuff, but he's also playing it out for this code stuff. He has interests in mathematics in discovering the origins of the universe in bettering the English empire. And all of those coincide with talking to angels and spycraft yeah. and assisting trade agencies and being a courtier to the queen. It's all, it's all very, it, I mean, it's alien to us from present day perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it does, it does seem not seem to be the case that it was all connected to him. Yeah. This was, yeah. this was the world that he lived in. He lived in a world in which, um, the, the, the British Empire, uh, had great things ahead of it, that things were cosmically aligned for it, that he himself was kind of the, the, the second coming of Merlin, that, uh, that, uh, that mathematics was the key to, to understanding and manipulating the forces in the world around him, and that you could, you could use some of these properties to communicate with essentially uh, extra dimensional beings. Yeah. Who would reveal the secrets of science to you. Yeah. 
uh, it's not like he was looking to cast fireballs and lightning bolts. He just wanted to know how the world worked. Yeah, he was he was he was endlessly curious. Huh. And that's John D., the good doctor. So, you know, he's got this reputation now that's endured as an astrologer and a magician. But I think, you know, what we should get out of these two episodes should be remembered that D. was an accomplished mathematician. And he influenced the field as well as physics, music, philosophy, optical theory and mechanical engineering. I mean, he really uh, Robert and I were talking about this outside the studio. I mean, he was very influential in the history of the world in a lot of ways. Uh, we remember him as being this deluded guy who could talk to angels, but he contributed to European intellectual history. There's actually an organization called the John D. Society uh, that I found in my searching around. It's an organization dedicated to producing standard editions of his work, and they're trying to reconstruct his library. So they're assembling an archive of this material as they find it on microfilm, although I imagine... Uh, that they're probably scanning it in digitally at this point. And I'd like to leave us with a quote from one of the books that I was consulting by R.W. Barron. It's called A Reputation History of John D., The Life of an Elizabethan Intellectual. And he says, four centuries after his death, we are still debating and wrestling with where D.'s work fits into the Elizabethan world picture and what contributions, if any, he made to those intellectual advancements. So there we have it. I mean... He's a fascinating fellow. He he seems to have influenced uh, our sciences. He's he's perfect for our, for stuff to blow your mind. You know, he's got a little bit of the weirdness, uh, the bizarre, bringing it into his understanding of the world, uh, bringing wonder to these things, mm-hmm. and then simultaneously using things that we now consider every day, like optics or cartography or 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 just basic math, uh, in the same respect. Yeah, and it's 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 just amazing that he's one of these guys that we know a fair amount about. Yeah, and yet you, the the more you read about him, the more you just ask, who who was this guy? You know, who yeah. was he? He really like what 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 was the world he saw when he looked out the window? You know, and uh, yeah, it's just just, a, just an amazing character. So it's been a, a great pleasure to uh, to research him and discuss him here uh, on the podcast. Yeah, I, for one, uh, next time I'm in London, I am definitely going to go to the British Museum and try to get a look at some of those occult artifacts. And I'd really like to visit uh, the site of Mortlake. Oh, just yeah. Just kind of see what it's like, too. Uh, from looking at Google Maps, it doesn't seem like it's that far southwest of London. So, uh, hey, anybody out there, have you uh, been there? Have you seen this stuff in the British Museum? Maybe you know... Uh, like I said at the top of all of this, there's so much research into John D that maybe, you know, there's stuff that we don't know about that we missed here. Maybe there's something you'd like to add that we could read in a future listener mail episode. Uh, you can hit us up on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, or Instagram. And don't forget to visit stufftoblowyourmind.com, which is our landing site where we'll have images that accompany this episode, uh, as well as all of the blog posts and all of the videos and all the other podcasts that we do here. Oh, and real quick, on a personal note, I just want to thank my my cousin, Father Bede Price, for suggesting research into these life and studies. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, this was this was really a pleasure. All right, so if you want to get in touch with us the old-fashioned way, put aside the uh, your your various scrying instruments, uh, put aside the magic mirror, and just simply send us an email at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. 
For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Thank you.